turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass, like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne, were four beasts, full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. In the body of Christ it takes all kinds. We uh, considered the variety of gifts and graces that are necessary in order for the ministry to be whole and complete. But I do believe in these faces, we also see that there is a variety of dispositions that are required in ministers and in all of the people of God. Most of us have learned by experience and seen it in the word of God that it seems that some men are built for times of peace and quiet working and others have been built for times of war. Some men have been built for the activity of public life, and other men have been built for the retirement of the study. And it requires all kinds, all <laughs> kinds of dispositions. Uh, and contemporary expression it would probably be something like a, a multiplicity of personalities, different kinds of personalities. Look again with me at uh, verse 7. Remember the general context. We have here in the fourth chapter a, a spiritual view of the church, her inner and hidden life. Jehovah, the great God of heaven, is enthroned in the midst of her. And Jehovah is surrounded by the people of God, the 24 courses of the priest kings. And as we've also seen, nearer to the throne are these four living creatures. We see, and I think quite conclusively, that unlike in Ezekiel, these are not angels but men. 
part of the church of Jesus Christ, members of that church, as they sing the song of redemption. These are men who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. We'll see that in chapter 5. But they have been in some uh, measure distinguished from the 24 priest kings. And so the question becomes, what is the principle of distinction? How is it that they are different? They are the same in that they are the redeemed of the Lord, but they appear to be different in their office. They call the others to worship, which makes it sound very much as if they are ministers. They are fewer than the 24, as it has always been true of the officers of the church. They are positioned closer to the throne, not as if they are priests or mediators for the people of God. There is only one priest and mediator, Jesus Christ. But they are placed in that position symbolically so that they might have eyes upon the throne from which they receive their commands and eyes upon their charges so that they might care for the people of God and implement the commands that they've heard from the throne. And they are different uh, in their appearance than the cherubs of Ezekiel. Similar in the four faces, but you remember the uh, cherubs of Ezekiel, each one had all four faces, as if each one of those cherubs, each one of those mighty angels had a fullness of gifting individually, whereas we see in ministers only a fullness of gifting collectively. Not each one being fully gifted, but having the fullness of gifts when they come together for the edification of the church. And this brings us to verse 7. I told you we would look at these descriptions more particularly and what they might indicate. And this is why I say it seems that this is not just a difference in gifting, but a difference in personality and disposition. And the first beast was like a lion. I mentioned to you in the, in the last sermon that what we learn in the Bible is not very different than the natural observations that almost everyone makes concerning these uh, creatures. So we won't look at anything strange or unusual. When you think about the primary qualities of a lion, what do you think of? You think of courage and boldness, zeal, and maybe even ferocity. It's no different in the, in the Word of God. Let me just simply read to you. We don't need to look at every one of these, but pay careful attention to a couple of descriptions of the, of the lion and reasons that it's invoked. <laughs> Isaiah 31.4 And thus hath, for thus hath the Lord spoken unto me, like as the lion and the young lion roaring on his prey, when a multitude of shepherds is called forth against him, he will not be afraid of their voice, nor abase himself for the noise of them. So shall the Lord of hosts come down to fight for Mount Zion and for the hill thereof. Here, um, the fearlessness of the lion in a fight is evoked as one of its primary characteristics and then a comparison is drawn with the Lord 
He is fearless in the fight when he comes down from Mount Zion, very much like a lion is fearless when it's taken its prey, regardless of a multitude of shepherds that might come against him. He won't be terrified at their noise. A second description, this comes from 2 Samuel 17, beginning at the seventh verse. And Hushai said unto Absalom, and you remember the situation here. David has been driven from the capital. Uh, Ahithophel has stayed with Absalom to give him counsel. And Ahithophel's counsel is like the very counsel of God itself. And that it has never been known to fail. David has sent Hushai back to uh, try to manage this matter. That's where we find ourselves. And Hushai said unto Absalom, The counsel that Ahithophel hath given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, Thou knowest thy father and his men, that they be mighty men, and they be chaffed in their minds, chafed in their minds, as a bear robbed of her whelps in the field. And thy father is a man of war, and will not lodge with the people. Behold, he is hid now in some pit, or in some other place, and it will come to pass, when some of them be overthrown at the first, that whosoever heareth it will say, There is a slaughter among the people that follow Absalom. And he also that is valiant, whose heart is as the heart of a lion, shall utterly melt. For all Israel knoweth that thy father is a mighty man, and they which be with him are valiant men. So here the um, courage of the heart of the lion is evoked to talk about the terrible fear that will come, that even men with lions' hearts will fail when they hear that uh, David is working a slaughter in the armies of uh, Absalom. And this is, this is the way that lions are always evoked, their courage, their fearlessness. These have always been useful in the church of Jesus Christ, especially in dark and dangerous times. And the church has frequently been called upon by her God and King to pass through dark and dangerous times. During those seasons, God has had a tendency also to call forth this sort of man from the midst of the church. A couple of illustrations, of course, during the apostolic era, the church was in need of men of courage. And men of courage were supplied in the apostles. Probably each one of them, not in the same degree, but each one of them a lion for courage. And you might think in particular of James and John who were called sons of thunder in their courage, their fearlessness, even their ferocity at times. Peter might be another one who is eminent in this way. You fast forward to the times of the Reformation. We'll see this in Revelation chapter 10. Whoever roared with the mouth of a lion like Martin Luther in the history of the church after the time of uh, the apostolic era, a man of courage and boldness. And have you ever asked yourself, what kind of a man would it take exactly to look at Charles V, the king of all of Europe, to look at Europe's most mighty princes, to look at all of the greatest theologians of the world and say, whatever you might do and whatever you might think, you are wrong. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. 
That takes a special kind of man. A man with the heart of a lion. We'll come back to, uh, to this sort of figure in a handful of minutes. But we press on to the second beast that is like a calf or an ox. And again, when you think of the ox, what do you think of? And you can be pretty sure that you'll find the same thing in the scripture. When we think of the ox, we think of strength. Strength for labor and work. There's a diligence and consistency and patience in labor and even in suffering. And so a couple of uh, scripture texts. Psalm 144.14 That our oxen may be strong to labor, that there be no breaking in or going out, that there be no complaining in our streets. But no sooner do you use the word ox than you say strong for labor. Or Proverbs 14.4 Where no oxen are, the crib is clean, but much increases by the strength of the ox. Some men are like lions in the work of the ministry, and other men are more like the ox who are... uh, Useful primarily in their, in their great consistency in labor, their patience, their diligence. And here, um, uh, returning to Luther, even as he compared himself with Melanchthon, he recognized this sort of difference. Now, I'm going to change the, the imagery here a little bit, but you'll see it's very much to the same min- uh, meaning. Whereas uh, Luther was very lion-like, Melanchthon, by comparison, was like the ox. But again, I said I'll change the, um, some of the language to Luther's own. As he thought about himself and Melanchthon and the difference in their personalities, he said, I am a man of war, and I am like a war hammer, always breaking up ground. <laughs> you think of a sledgehammer got these rocks, no good for soil, and there's Luther like the war hammer, like a sledgehammer breaking up ground. But then he said, and uh, Melanchthon comes behind like a gentle rain, sowing seed. And uh, Luther recognized that it takes both kinds. You would think that they would very much um, frustrate one another. And sometimes they did. But mostly they recognized the the usefulness of the difference. And there was a bond sealed between them that uh, is stronger than anything that you might expect on the the natural level. The third beast had a face as a man. What do you think of when you think of men, particularly as they are contrasted with animals, wild animals? You think of intelligence and wisdom, the activity of the higher faculties of the mind that animals do not have. And you also think of what uh, people used to call humanity, a certain sort of fellow feeling and mutual sympathy that uh, uh, the animals don't seem to have one for another. A couple of things to consider. You remember when Nebuchadnezzar in his great pride is brought to insanity by the great God of heaven when his intelligence is taken from him. It's described in this way. Let his heart be changed from a man's 
And let a beast's heart be given unto him. And let seven times pass over him. Daniel 4.16. You see the contrast here. The heart, the intelligent mind of a man is going to be taken away. And he is going to act without intelligence like a beast. And uh, in, in addition to this, um, especially in contrast with animals, the heart of a, of a man is a heart of humanity, of mutual sympathy and fellow feeling. In Hosea 11.4, you get this, I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke on their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. The cords of a man, the bands of love, fellow feeling and mutual sympathy. When you uh, look in the scripture, some have excelled in intelligence and practical judgment. When you think of this among the apostles, you might think that Paul was most eminent in this regard. So far excelling the others that even the Apostle Peter says of Paul's writings that in them there are many things that are hard to understand. This is something that excels in knowledge, trained in uh, divinity with a certain sort of thoroughness that none of the others were, in spite of their uh, uh, being with the Lord Jesus Christ for the three years of his earthly ministry. Paul had been prepared in the very best of the rabbinical schools, and then, having the very best that this world's education could give him, then he had the Lord's direct education of himself to where the net effect would be he excelled them all in this way. Some have excelled in humanity. And here when you put all of these together, and as I was thinking about this and the history of the church, Calvin came to mind. Calvin was a, a man of great learning, great practical wisdom in the care of the church, but also a man, and this is, this is frequently passed by in his personality, a man of great humanity. Calvin worked um, all day, every day in the service of the church, worked uh, so hard and so long that eventually it would break his health and send him to an early grave. But uh, few remember that Calvin, after a long day in the work of the ministry and study and contending with the government of Geneva, would come home to a, a house full of poor people for whom he cared, provided sustenance, made sure that they had the things that they needed. So uh, Calvin was a man of all of these characteristics and traits. And the final, uh, the fourth, fourth beast was like a flying eagle. What do you think of when you think of the eagle? He effortlessly soars to great heights. He is known for his keenness of vision in the hunt. From great heights he can spot his prey. And then he's known for his swiftness that he can come upon his prey very quickly. And these are the very ways that the eagle is described and evoked symbolically in the scriptures. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? 
For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Proverbs 23.5 So here, uh, riches are likened unto the eagle in that they fly very high, very far, very quickly or swiftly away from a man. From thence she seeketh the prey, and her eyes behold afar off her keenness of vision. Job 39.29 And her swiftness, behold, he shall come up as clouds, and his chariots shall be a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe unto us, for we are spoiled. Jeremiah 4.13 When we think of uh, how this might make itself manifest in uh, officers, do very much think of um, those who have been able to ascend into heavenly things with a seeming ease that others do not possess. Among the among the apostles, you might think of Paul, but you might also think of our author, who was known as Saint John the Divine. The theologian, the man who had been granted such great and powerful revelation that his mind ascended to heavenly things uh, with an ease and facility that the minds of the other apostles uh, did not. You think of some of those other uh, figures in church history. Some of you will know the name of William Twist, who is thought of as a theologian second to none in the problem of the ordering of the divine decrees. Certainly, lofty considerations that excel the powers of most men. John Gill, who is certainly no no lightweight in these sorts of considerations in his body of practical divinity when he discusses the supralapsarian question, he says, you must read twists. No one is likened to twists in these considerations. In the difficulties and the perplexities, uh, and here I, I was just reading this this morning, and I think it highlights how some men are gifted for these sorts of things. Uh, George Gillespie, the great Scottish theologian, ascended to heights of theological understanding at an age that almost defies belief and understanding. If you ever have an opportunity to read his uh, disputation on English popish ceremonies, remember that the young man, if I mistake not, was maybe 22 years of age, between 22 and 25. Astonishing. And we're not the only ones that were astonished. Mm -hmm. All of his peers were astonished as well. And of a young man of hardly 30 years of age, he sat in the Westminster Assembly and uh, debated. Uh, and he was, he was admired at his ability to grasp arguments immediately, to show the marrow of them, in spite of all of the things that uh, the learned do to sort of cloud <laughs> argumentation, to show the marrow of them and to refute them both with logic and with an incredible breadth of learning. The learned Selden, who was uh, called that because of his uh, abilities and his vast erudition in the field of rabbinic, uh, rabbinical learning, 
said that the young man is a single speech undone ten years of my learning. And it's said that Selden never participated in the debates of the assembly again after his uh, confrontation with this young man. man. And uh, Bailey, another uh, theological heavyweight, said he never knew the like for the ability for public disputation. Uh, so, uh, I, I can I could go on. You try to read Jonathan Edwards in The Freedom of the Will and you'll see a man who has an ability to ascend to great heights very quickly. And uh, the Lord has always provided his church with such men. Now, to clarify, I don't want you very much like the gifts. I don't want you to think of these dispositions as airtight categories. There have been some men who have shown a remarkable balance of all of them according to the people and the season in which they find themselves. The Apostle Paul might be second to none in the history of the church in uh, accomplishing uh, the idea of becoming all things to all men, just depending upon what they need and what the situation is. And so Paul, depending upon the situation, could sometimes be a lion. Read Galatians and 2 Corinthians. Always the laboring ox to where he could say without undue boasting that he had outlabored all of the other apostles. It's amazing. He writes that under the inspiration of the Spirit. It was true. He had outworked all of them. We had already talked about his learning, base of man and of eagle. You want his humanity? Read Second Corinthians. You'll see both the lion and the face of a man. In these things. So I don't mean to present these as airtight categories. But we do recognize that most people uh, have a prevalence of one or two of them and less of others. And really for wholeness we need all. And we need all kinds. I wanted to take away from this just a couple of doctrinal conclusions just very quickly, because I think that the conclusions are right on the face of these things. First of all, we must recognize that all of these personalities, all of these dispositions are useful to the church. And all have their, their particular times and seasons and places where they are particularly or peculiarly useful. God will call forth his lions when they are needed. You think of Luther, you think of John Knox in uh, Scotland. He will call oxen, men, and eagles. For that first work of reformation, you needed lions for the consolidation of the achievement, the setting up of schools, and passing the theology on to our children. You needed the Protestant scholastics, who were not so much lions as oxen, Consistently uh, uh, grinding up the wheat, men of learning, and sometimes uh, vast and nearly uh, incomprehensible erudition, men and eagles. Uh, but you see that all were necessary. Luther had his, his work that he was built for, but uh, Luther never produced a systematic theology. He wasn't built for that. Melanchthon was. All are useful. 
So I wanted to take away from this just one use, which might sound peculiar, but I do believe that there's more reason for it than what you might at first think. Let us give thanks to God for the rich provision he has made for his church in the variety of ministers, and you might also say of people. I say that because we must be careful not to despise this provision, and it can, it can happen very easily. I'll give you a couple of illustrations of this. It's very easy to put, be put off by the lion-like personality. To find it uh, abrasive and um, harsh and hard and unseemly. Martin Luther was, by all accounts, very difficult to deal with as a person. Uh, Luther actually recognized this. Luther would say things about his friends like this. Some of you all have heard me say it before. He said, there are many times in life when I've bitten into a nut, expecting to find it sweet, only to find it bitter. Erasmus and Zwingli are wormy nuts that taste like dung in the mouth. And these are, particularly Zwingli, allies. But then he would go on to say, to uh, his wife, he would say, what's wrong with me? I don't have a kind word for anyone. Not even my friends. It was easy to see in Luther because his usefulness to the church, the usefulness of his personality, was already by this time evident to everyone. But this is not to excuse his sinfulness. You say, I, I don't mean to excuse his sinfulness because he did recognize uh, his sinfulness. And at Marburg, his sinfulness in some of these regards hurt the Reformation, his stubbornness with Zwingli, his harshness. Uh, but here we must, take a, um, we must take a balanced view and be grateful to God that he raised up a lion that was ready to defy popes and councils and kings and all by that conscience that was bound by the word of God and yet at the same time not excuse um, uh, the, skin, the sins that uh, divided the Reformation prevented its union but I say all of this mostly let us not despise the provision when the Lord raises up lions in our midst this does have a certain usefulness to the church and we're not to we are not to despise it our church, like a battleship, has been through its share of difficulties. And our church does have its lions in the, in the midst. I marveled. I myself was very uh, quickly crushed in spirit by the conflict. But there are people in our midst who seem to have almost an infinite capacity to deal with the stresses that come with such things. And they are a gift from God. C.S. Lewis once wrote about this. He said that uh, he was very glad, as horrific as war is, and they were in the midst of World War II, and he had no illusions or romantic notions of war. He knew it as it was. But he was very grateful to God that soldiers were able to go out with some gusto and do the day's work that had been set before them, that they weren't always crying and carrying on, but they were able to do it with a certain wholeheartedness. 
And God does raise up lions who are able to do the work of a lion with wholeheartedness. It doesn't crush the spirit or destroy them. They've been built by God for that very thing. Maybe one other illustration of this sort of thing, general principle. I remember uh, being uh, taken off of my studies one day in seminary by a motorcycle accident down at the end of my driveway. Uh, the man had taken the guardrail the, in the chest, and I was pretty sure that he was dying. Uh, also, uh, um, uh, one of his knees was, was cracked open and broken open like a wishbone. No bleeding, because the way it was twisted, it tourniqueted it. But you could see um, all of the bones and where they, where they meet there, and the tendons and ligaments exposed. And so as I was talking to this man, I had some training in first aid, but had no idea to do what to do with a man whose ribcage is gone. I mean, what do you do for him? You can't give him compressions. And I could tell that he was, uh, he was struggling to breathe on his own blood. And God gives grace and strength for the moment. The paramedics uh, uh, drive up. They get off the ambulance. They bring the, the stretcher down. They put an oxygen mask over his face. They straighten his leg. And he set forth a scream like I've never heard in my life, screaming into that mask. And they quietly go on about their business, do the first aid, patch him up, put him on the back of the cart, and roll on. Not a... Not a furrow brow or, brow or frown in their midst. And I'm sitting on the roadside, trembling, but grateful that God has built some men, both by disposition and training, that can do that without the crushing of the spirit. Because after they drop that man off at the hospital, they're going to have to go again. And this is something that God gives to men. It can seem uh, almost otherworldly to people that don't have that disposition and don't have that training. But useful, it is. And we should be grateful to God for it. Another example of how we can end up despising the very provision that God has given us. You think of the uh, minister that's like a laboring ox, uh, very slow and steady in his work. And... Um, People can become frustrated by the slowness and the carefulness of it. And I don't want to excuse any sort of sin as far as ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth and those sorts of things or drawing back from application or from discipline or any of those sorts of things. But there is a great usefulness, is there not, in the in the slow and sure-footed man who always produces work of the very highest quality and certainty. It can be frustrating to a personality of a different sort. Sometimes Luther was a little frustrated with Melanchthon. He'd write to him and say, sometimes you sound like you're ready to give away the whole Reformation. What's wrong with you, man? I know you want, I know that you're planting your feet for the unity of the church. Now that I know what you're doing. But sometimes it sounds to me like you're willing to give it all the way. And Melanchthon would do that. That slow, sure-footed work as he worked with some of the Reformed, Bootser and some others. The whole time, Luther, the lion, is hurling bombs at the Reformed. <laughs> uh, it's the two personalities at work, and both uh, are very much in need of each other. 
You can think of the frustration that comes with dealing with the eagle. Your head is in the clouds. And sometimes that can be true. Again, I don't want to exclude any sin. Most of us don't know how to resolve the superlapsarian question. I know that I don't. But aren't we grateful to God for the men who have ascended to such heights and have at least made an endeavor and attempt to teach the rest of us and to help us understand? It can be frustrating. It can be that we always must recognize that it's useful and not despise the gift. Do you hear that? The gift that God has given. I thought that we might conclude with the singing of Psalm 23 and give thanks to the Good Shepherd of the sheep who has made such a rich provision for us.